Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. I'd like to add my own voice to the the love and the appreciation and thankfulness that we, the Newland family, feel towards those here at Ball Road. You've been so open and generous to us, and uh, we appreciate it so, so much. Don't need to move it down a little bit more, or does it just need to be lowered? Is that okay? Everybody good? All right. I'd like to start this morning by telling you two stories, two true stories that each have to do with mirrors. The first, you see, not everyone sees the truth when they look into a mirror. There was a 78-year-old French man who we'll call Mr. B. He felt haunted in his own home. You see, a stranger had started appearing in his bathroom mirror. This isn't a joke, by the way. I, I think you're seeing a punchline that isn't there. This is a real case, okay? Now, maybe you're thinking of old age or something like that. That's my guess. But this is actually a real kind of spooky case in which a figure appeared in the mirror that looked exactly like him, spoke like him, moved, copies every move, and yet to Mr. B, it felt like a complete stranger, like someone had taken over his own body in the mirror. In fact, it's kind of a weird variation on the classic movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers, only instead of aliens taking over human bodies, it was his own brain. And it's the patient's own brain in this mysterious, this mysterious disorder called Capgras Syndrome. Capgras Syndrome is a disorder in which pe- people s- stop being able to recognize familiar faces. Now, usually it's a family member or a friend or even a pet. They will feel as if something else, some entity or some stranger has taken over the body of, of, of a family pet or of their friend or their family member. They look the same, but there's something different behind the eyes and they're convinced it's not the same person. But what makes Mr. B's particular syn- uh, syndrome different is that he was looking in the mirror and he couldn't even recognize himself. Now, he, he acted normally in other situations. He knew where he was and when. He wasn't confused as to who his family was. But he began taking his meals into the bathroom and eating in there with two sets of cutlery. One for himself and one for the stranger. He even started having conversations with the man. And the man seemed to know an awful lot about him. Eventually, the man in the mirror became aggressive. Now, the case study doesn't get in, go into any more detail than that. Uh, but apparently, the figure in his mind became aggressive, and so eventually, that's when the family noticed and he was taken to the hospital. He's doing a lot better now uh, through antipsychotic medication. But I have to say, this story kind of sends a chill up my spine. Maybe it does you as well. Let me tell you one more story. And this is another syndrome that's true and real. And it actually seems to be a growing disorder. It's called BDD, 
or body dysmorphic disorder. Let me tell you about a 30-year-old man named David. We'll call him David. He gets up in the morning and his morning routine gets no further than the bedroom mirror. Because when he looks into the bedroom mirror, he sees a horribly disfigured and scarred face. He sees a nose that has, that's swollen and broken and twisted and has scars all over it. He sees an eye that is bulging out of its socket. But this problem is only in his mind. His face has no deformity. He believes it does, though. And he's had four cosmetic surgeries, all of which have been unsuccessful because in reality there was nothing they could do. The problem is not with his face or his body. The problem is in his mind. And this is a syndrome that is happening all over the world and and especially in our own country. There was a teacher in Boston who would run out of class in the middle of class, would run out of class because she was afraid that the students were able to see her horribly disfigured face under the layers of makeup that she had caked on. There was a businessman in Denver who would call his mother every few minutes. For hours at a time, he would call her probably 15 times a day at the office just to get reassurance that he wasn't disfigured. And he would spend time in the bathroom stall with a pocket mirror trying to figure out how best to fix his appearance. Again, the problem was not any true disfigurement. The problem was in his mind. BDD, another spooky and mysterious syndrome. And it's a neurological disorder. And sadly, many people who suffer from this don't believe the problem is, is in their mind. So they don't want to see psychologists. They want to see plastic surgeons about it. Can you imagine suffering from either of these syndromes? Being able to, really waking up and looking into the mirror and not being able to recognize yourself? I don't think any of us can imagine that in a physical sense. But I'd say in a metaphorical sense, we can all get what that feels like. You guys laughed for a reason, didn't you? Okay? You get in a metaphorical sense what it's like to wake up maybe a few years older than you were before and realize, this is not me. Okay? I've done that. I think also in a spiritual sense, this is especially something we can relate to. I think we've all at some point looked in the mirror and thought, what has happened to me? Who have I become? Why, did I, why have I become twisted into this other person? And we don't even recognize ourselves. You see, this is the power that sin has over our lives. Satan is a crafty liar and he is able to twist us and manipulate us and mold us into someone that we don't even recognize. He's able to transform us through sin so that we look in the mirror and we think, who am I? He did this in the beginning, didn't he? In the Garden of Eden, when he tempted Adam and Eve, when he tempted Eve with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she ate of the fruit, and it says her eyes were opened. And they were opened not only to her own shame, her own nakedness, as the text says, but after they were banished, both Adam and Eve's eyes were opened to a complete transformation of their entire world. Suddenly, Adam is getting blisters on his hands when he works the ground. Suddenly, he's cutting himself on thorns and thistles. 
Suddenly Eve is having great pain in childbearing. And both of them, Adam and Eve, now have an enmity and a rivalry between them that hadn't been there before. But now it seems to be here to stay, this rivalry and this tension. And worst of all, they have to watch as death becomes a companion in their lives. They watch their own son get killed. They watch as each other's hair grows white as their faces got, became wrinkled with age. And this was totally foreign to them until eventually, as was promised, they died. Through one foul move, Satan had transformed the world and had transformed humanity from the image of God into this scarred, this scarred thing that is barely recognizable. He twisted humanity so that we wouldn't even recognize ourselves. He continues to do this to this day. We see it throughout Scripture. One of my favorite examples, and by favorite, I don't mean I love the story, but it's, it's certainly a story that gets our attention. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read about King David's greatest sin. King David was walking on a rooftop in the cool of the evening, apparently minding his own business when he happened to spot a woman bathing on another rooftop. And so he sins for her. Finds out she's the wife of Uriah, one of his greatest servants. But that doesn't stop David. He calls for her anyway. He knows Uriah is off at war. She's all alone by herself. So he calls her to his bedchamber and they commit adultery. And he thinks that's it. It's a one-night stand. I can get away with it. I'm above the law. Everything's fine. Of course, that's not how it works out, is it? She comes to him. She sends messengers and tells him, I'm pregnant. And now he has a problem. He has to get out of this situation. So he starts spinning a web of lies, trying scheme after scheme to trick Uriah into thinking this child that will come is his own. But none of them work. And so David, with his, really with his back up against the wall, decides there's only one way out. I'm going to have to kill Uriah. And that's what he does. He murders his most loyal servant. This is King David we're talking about. The man after God's own heart. The man who, I I think all of us can agree, for whom loyalty was very important. Yet now here he is, a murderer. And he thinks he's got off scot-free. He thinks he's got away with it. But according to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, it says, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It hadn't escaped God's notice. So in the next chapter, chapter 12, we see God sends a prophet to David. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb 
and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan tells this parable of two men, one rich and greedy, the other poor. And the poor man has this sheep, this lamb, that he has treated like his own child. It's a very close family pet. The other man has all the sheep he could ask for. But he's so greedy that he decides to steal this man's lamb and slaughter it. Now this story gets David angry, doesn't it? In verse 5 it says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely... The man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. No compassion. That's pretty rich coming from David at this point, isn't it? He's angry at this man. This man who had no compassion. This man who thought he was above the law. This man who thought he could take whatever he wanted. And David's perceptions have been so twisted by sin and by Satan, that he doesn't even recognize this story is about himself. He doesn't even recognize that this story is a mirror into his own life. And that's, when, that's why he doesn't see what's coming next. In verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Satan can transform us so much so that we don't even recognize ourselves, even in Scripture. There's no way to answer this question, but I wonder how many of us, myself included, have listened to a sermon and had it go in one ear and out the other, not realizing that it was directly applicable to our own lives. Not realizing that it was confronting the very sin that we were struggling with at the time, but perhaps our perceptions were so twisted that we didn't even recognize ourselves in the lesson. This happens today. Satan can transform us. Sin transforms us so that we don't even recognize ourselves. Our perceptions are skewed so that good things seem bad and bad things seem good. Satan has this power and that should cause us pause. It should make us frightened that he has this kind of power. But there is hope. Because even though Satan has the power to transform us into people we wouldn't even recognize, God does too. And even more so. You see, God can transform you into someone you wouldn't even recognize. And I mean that in the most positive sense. But don't take just my word for it. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the passage that was read to us just a minute ago. Verse 18, he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We, he, Paul says, we are being transformed into his glorious image, the power of the Holy Spirit, from glory to glory. Paul himself is a testament to this fact. Let's focus on Paul for just a moment. Paul is probably the greatest example of a changed life that we can find, isn't he? First of all, his name changed. His name was Saul. And do you remember what he was like when his name was Saul? Do you remember what his past was like? Paul, we we put him up on a pedestal, don't we? We think of him as one of the greatest men to ever live, one of the greatest apostles 
One of the greatest preachers. And yet he comes from a very, very dark past. Let's read a couple of passages of his own personal accounting of his past. And by the way, usually we would have uh, slides, and I, uh, but because we don't at the moment, I will ask you to have your Bible ready to flip between several of these passages. I'm going to be pretty quick as I go, just a warning. But let's look at some of Paul's personal account of the man he had once been. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. He said he was a Pharisee, zealous for the old law, so zealous that he found himself persecuting Christians. Look at Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 3, Paul says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, talking about Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most well-known teachers of the time, a very wise uh, rabbi. He says, I was trained under Gamaliel strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for this way, talking about the church, being, or excuse me, being zealous for God, just as you all are today, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Paul says, you want to know about my background? I used to persecute Christians. And not only did he persecute Christians, he bound them, he put them in chains, and he, as he says, persecuted them to death. Look at what he says in Acts 26, another personal account starting in verse 9. He says, so then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, your version might say, being obsessed with them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. We need to realize something about Paul's background, Paul's past. He wasn't just a persecutor of the church. He was obsessively a persecutor of the church. And when it came time, when people were deciding whether or not to kill a Christian, whether or not to stone that innocent person right before his eyes, Paul voted in favor. Paul voted to murder And he was on his way to do more of that. I love the way the Acts 22 passage is worded. It basically says, I was on my way to do more sin, but God met me along the way. That's why he was going to Damascus. He was on his way to, do, to commit even more atrocities. But he says, God met me along the way. I wonder how many of us has something like that happened to. Where we were on our way to do more sin, but somehow we met God on the way. Well, God met, in a very physical, literal sense, he met with Paul on that road when he was still named Saul, blinded him. And from that moment on, Saul's life began to change. Suddenly, a a man who was 
very strict in Jewish law. A man who would never have been caught dead in a Gentile's house is now preaching the good news to the Gentiles. He even calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles in the book of Romans. Suddenly this man who had been really zealous for the old law, the old covenant, a man who had been a Pharisee, a judge of anyone, uh, of all Christians, a man who had beaten and bound them, was now being bound and beaten for the same reason. A man who had once voted in favor of executing Christians will one day, at the end of his life, have a vote cast against him. And he was eventually executed for the same reason. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a transformed life the way I see it. This is what it looks like. This is what a transformed, a truly changed life looks like looks like. You know what that tells me? It tells me that all the times that Paul or other writers speak of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, they're speaking of it as a real thing. It's real. The change is real. We don't, sometimes we don't act like it is. It's real. It happened with Paul. It can happen with all of us. We can be changed from a murderer into something, a servant. Something much more glorious. So let's look back at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's read a few verses around it. See what Paul has to say about this. Paul is making a point here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's making a point. He's really comparing the old law and the new law. The old covenant and the new covenant. And while he's doing that, he's also comparing his old life with his new life. Because when he was Saul, when he was in his old life, he was very zealous for that law. He trusted in the law of Moses. But now here he is under this new covenant, and he says it's so much more glorious. Yes, the old law had its glory, but he says that's nothing compared to the glory of the new covenant. And this is the point that he's making uh, in, once he gets to verse 12. He says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. He's referencing back to uh, the time when Moses became very radiant because of his time spent in the presence of God. He had to cover his face. Paul is saying... That Moses basically covered his face because that, that radiance wasn't there to stay. But he's going to use this imagery of the veil moving forward. He says, But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So now he's saying the Jewish people, even at the time of his writing, they have a veil over their hearts, a veil over their eyes. They don't see the truth. They don't see the true glory of God because it's, being, it's been covered up. The only way to remove the veil, he says, is if they turn to Christ. Christ is the only one who removes the veil. It's only through Christ that, 
that we're able to witness and behold the glory of God, which is what he says here in the next couple of verses. He says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. It's a very interesting thought. He's using now the imagery of a mirror. And it's the idea that we're viewing in the mirror God's glory, but at the same time it's reflecting back on us because we are, in a sense, viewing ourselves. Not as we are, but as who we can be, who we will one day be. And he's, I think the reason he uses the idea of a mirror, especially when talking about beholding God's glory, is because ancient mirrors were not like our mirrors, the mirrors we have today. Our mirrors today are very clear. They offer a very realistic, very vivid reflection. But the mirrors of that time were made of polished metal. And they were often, it was often a very cloudy, foggy, distorted image that came across. And so I think the idea that Paul is saying, he's basically saying we're witnessing the glory now, but we're not witnessing it perfectly yet. That will come. We will be able to behold the full glory one day, but for now we are witnessing at least a part of it, and it's magnificent. (laughs) And he says, as we behold this glory, we are being transformed. And he makes note to to tell us that that it's the Holy Spirit that is at work doing this. Now, it, it is God's work in us, but it requires something on our part. That is the beholding part. As we behold, we are transformed. So the question is, what does it mean to behold? Well, the word literally means to, to study carefully. Right? And I think, I think when we're beholding, it means we're spending time, truly spending time with the Lord. Whether it be in carefully studying His Word, whether it be in prayer, or in our fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. Truly beholding, truly spending time with God. And, and really... This is how we know someone is truly spending time with God if their life is actually being transformed. Now, there are a couple of things we need to realize about this transformation. Number one, we need to realize that it is a process. It's not complete yet. It's not complete yet. None of us should should expect to have already been perfected. Nor, and I think we might do this a little bit more often, nor should we expect somebody else to be completely perfected. You know, we often give ourselves that grace. We say, I'm not perfect. Do we give the same grace to other people? I hope so. But this is a process. It's not complete yet. And it won't be complete until the final day when we're in a new and glorious body. And, 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 And I don't think we can fully comprehend Uh, what that means yet. But we are still, little by little, at the moment, being changed. Getting better and better. Little by little, God is changing us as we spend time with Him and behold His glory. Now, some visitors in the church can be intimidated by Christians. Because they think, oh, they're just perfect. Their lives are all put together. That's not true, is it? It's not. We're not perfect yet. We are being perfected. There's a difference. There's a difference. 
And so if, if someone here has ever felt intimidated by, all, by how good Christians are, let me just let you in on a little secret. We're not. It's only how great God is. That who, it's only He that gives us any, any goodness at all. He is the one changing us little by little. But we don't have our lives completely worked out. We haven't put sin completely out of our lives. Even Paul, whose life, as we saw, changed so drastically, even he wrote about the sin that lived within him. We are being perfected from glory to glory, the text says. I think that's important to note also. Because it doesn't say from backsliding to glory to backsliding to glory. In other words, we're not being told that our growth is really, it goes back and forth from sin to growth. Okay, It's supposed to be getting better and better, from glory to even more glory. It's a progression, an upward trajectory, not that we're going back and forth between sin and growth like a ping pong ball. It's supposed to be continually we are getting better. We're better now than we were yesterday. We resist sin and the devil better now than we did yesterday. It's not that one day I might be good and the next day I might be bad. It's supposed to be up, an upward trajectory. But that's really the first thing we need to understand, that it's a process, that it's not done yet. The second thing we need to understand is that, and this comes from what Paul says about the Holy Spirit, your version might say at the end there, by the Holy Spirit or by the Spirit of the Lord. He's, with these words, Paul is emphasizing a couple of things. First of all, he's emphasizing the fact that this transformation only comes through the New Covenant. Because it's only in the New Covenant that we have the Spirit. So, he's saying, first of all, the old law didn't change anyone, it didn't transform anyone, at least not the way this New Covenant is. This New Covenant, we have the Spirit through this New Covenant, and that is how we are being changed. And that's the second thing he's emphasizing here, that it's not a work of ourselves. It's not our own willpower. It's not our own merit. It's another misunderstanding that often takes place that when people want to be a Christian, when people uh, are kind of making that decision, they often think that, that they have to become better based on their own willpower. But, and don't get me wrong, it, it will take effort on our part. But the change is not ours. It's God's work within us. God is the one who is changing us. And he changes us from the inside out. When we change ourselves, it becomes kind of outside in, doesn't it? God changes us from the inside out. And it's a continual progression. We, didn't, we don't achieve or earn this transformation. When we, when we behold God, when we spend time with him, we are simply putting ourselves in the position for him to change us. I think that's an important distinction for us to make. Uh, not only because, well, I should say, not only for the reasons I just said, but also because we need to, we need to taper our own arrogance. Okay? It's not that we're good. It's about how great God is. So, all of that being said, my call for you this morning is quite simple. You have an opportunity. God wants to transform your life. Satan and sin 
already has transformed your life. God created man in his image, but that image was scarred by sin. And we as humans have been transformed into something unrecognizable. But God has the power and the means and the motivation to transform us back into who we were meant to be all along. He's still working on some of us. In fact, some of us here, we were liars and swindlers and petty gossips and who knows what else. And we're still struggling. He's still working on us. But that transformation has started in our lives. And it can start in your life as well. And that transformation, it's going to reach a wonderful end that I hope and I pray that you will, that you will want that, that you will seek that out. Now, if you're here this morning and you feel like you're not good enough for God to change you, may I point you to the Apostle Paul? I doubt, I highly doubt, that your past is as dark as his. But even if it was, that doesn't mean God can't save you. I, I heard the words of another preacher that were passed on to me by a member here, and I, I liked these words, so I'll share them with you. This preacher had a ready-made response any time he was told by someone that they weren't good enough to be saved. This preacher said, that's the height of arrogance. It's arrogant to think that even though God has saved murderers and swindlers and liars and cheats and thieves and, and persecutors of the church, it's arrogance to think that even though God can save them, your past is so bad that he can't save you. That's arrogant. And it's not true. God can save you and he will save you if only you would submit to him. He can transform your life if you, would, you can at least begin that transformation today, please come as together we stand and sing.